0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ike Walsh
1: is a little pissing monkey, and he's about to be interviewed by Ike Walsh. Magdalena had never heard Norman say anything quite that contemptuous before, although many times she had heard him refer to TV people in general as suggestible and inflammable children, innocent of any conceptual thinking whatsoever. Right now, the operative word was inflammable. The TV news shows were all hot to exploit the results of a National Institute of Health Studies showing that an astounding 65% of all hits on the Internet were at pornographic sites. The National Institute of Health, the U.S. government, was warning of a pandemic of pornographic addiction. It had risen from naughty to a national health crisis. They're critically nil, Norman liked to say, referring to the tiny inflamed brains of the TV people. On the other hand, he didn't mind appearing on their shows. They exploit the so-called pornography addiction, he'd say, and he always threw in so-called, and I exploit them. He was great at it. Magdalena knew she was more than a bit biased, but Norman was wonderful on television, so calm, so well-spoken, so all-knowing and yet good-humored, and the way he looked, but now he thinks he's going to treat the fiercest man on television as a tiny, pissing monkey. As a matter of fact, Ike Waltz is a thinly disguised Name of somebody who was known as the Great Inquisitor on uh, 60 Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I gathered that. <laughs> and the, my character, who is uh, ultimately disgusting and brilliant, actually totally dominates the, great, the Grand Inquisitor on this segment of 60 Minutes. I just mentioned one, one thing he does. He has this theory that pornography addiction is not a real addiction, that it's just weakness. The rest of the psychiatric community feels that it is a, a, a real addiction, like drink. The first question from the Grand Inquisitor is, he mentions three different psychiatrists, and one of them who won the Nobel Prize. They completely disagree with you. So are you saying that uh, you're more brilliant than they are, <clears throat> to which uh, Norman Lewis, this, the pornography addiction psych- psychiatrist, says, "I know all three of them. In fact, I had dinner with one of them just the other night." So the grand inquisitor said, "Well, what, do, what does that have to, uh, to do with anything?" He says, "But you have to get to know them. You have to know how they really think." And it's been one of the great privileges to to know these people. Uh, so in fact, I was at dinner, uh, just three nights ago, with the, he mentions the Nobel Prize winner. It turns out. Uh, that you learn through the thinking of the character who's, through whose eyes you uh, are witnessing this. Uh, this was a dinner of some 400 people honoring the Nobel Prize winner. And my character, Norman Lewis, along with 399 other people, shook hands with him in a receiving line. It was a total <laughs> contact. But the, as someone who wants to do good for the world, if you will read that part of the book about how Norman Lewis turns into the uh, the pissing monkey, it'll do good things for you and when you're ever confronted by people who are asking you these pointed, obviously contemptuous questions, it really works. Really it really works. I mean, it's not a how to book, you know, but but that part works.
0: Tom Wolfe is the author of American classics, including The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, The Right Stuff, I Am Charlotte Simmons, A Man in Full, The Bonfire of the Vanities. His newest book is Back to Blood. He's back to blood. Thank you for joining me, Tom. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. Tom, you were just talking about Norman Lewis, and one of the things that I was thinking about was that the way that you've managed to capture in three different generations— of american men who though they are older and are supposed to be at some level of what we might have called once called maturity <sighs> are actually not and i think of and but they all but in the milieus in which you capture them they all come out rather differently we have the men in electric Kool-Aid acid test who managed to be somewhat effective in their milieu despite some of their immaturities, and then the men in The Right Stuff who are (laughs) like chest-thumping high school football players. (laughs) And then we have the pathetic specimens (laughs) in Back to Blood. So I'd like you to just talk about your insights into the male mind and this kind of reverse maturity uh, syndrome that we seem to suffer from.
1: Well, I put it like this. Even in a highly... rational age, like the age of bureaucracies and hyper-organization of all activities. There's one thing I think never changes, and that is what happened on the playground. Among males, I'm not talking about women. Very quickly, the boys learn whether they are going to be the tough guys, which translates into leaders, are they going to be people who have to give in and somehow make their way through the world uh, having uh, given in? Now, I, I'll give you an example. And I shouldn't say this because I was a newspaper reporter myself for 10 years. Uh, the reason most newspaper reporters today uh, are liberals has absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with the great ideological battles of our time. They are the ones who came out on the uh, number two in this great breakdown into tough guys and leaders and and, and the passive ones who have to somehow make accommodations with the uh, with the strong. I shouldn't say that because we have images of the newspaper reporters as these hard-hitting, strong-minded people, but this is so rare, I can tell you. But they often are. They're bright because they were driven to studying by the fact they didn't uh, were not triumphant in sports, and they were they had ambition, but they didn't feel they did not feel powerful. And in fact, right now I'm working on a magazine piece. Uh, this is not fiction; it's uh, real. Uh, comparing the famous traders on Wall Street, the people that. In the Bonfire of the Vanities, I referred to as the masters of the universe. That's what they, they sort of began to think of themselves that way. It's a hyper hyper macho world, and they think of themselves as soldiers in combat. Except the possibility of being hurt on the job as a a, a stock trader is statistically nil because they they're all most of them are all under forty. Um, and I've never even heard of one of them having a stroke, uh, but they like to feel themselves as, as, as uh, combatants. Now, into the picture uh, that I tried to create in 1987 when the masters of the universe were at their height, and, I mean, they were making tons of money, too, uh, is the, the slow introduction of or arrival of the quants quant stands for quantitative analyst these are people who approach the business of trading in stocks on a completely mathematical level they don't care what stock they're dealing in uh, they're even bothered to look it's all done by little variations between the the price of the underlying stock and the price of the uh, derivatives, by which I mean things like the futures on that stock or the warrants or the options, uh, there are about six or seven of these different derivatives. And they just wait to see when they're out of line. Eventually, they're going to line up exactly right. But it may take 15 seconds or 30 seconds before the market does all the, 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 the calculations. They spot these things and immediately trade... Either one way or the other, I mean, if, the, you know, if there's a, a, a divergence, they can play it either way. They can sell one short and the other long. They will sell 300,000 shares of a stock, which my God knows how much it would cost. They don't care. Short. When you sell short, you are paid the money for the stock, but you have an interval in which you have to pay it back. You mean, you have to get furnish the buyer with the stock. Mm-hmm. That's very dicey if you're waiting two weeks or something but if you're waiting a split second or a sp- split split second they actually get down to the point of millionths of a second then you are not in much danger of being uh, of the thing ruining you and if they can if they can sell 300,000 shares uh, or s- sell them short yeah they can make if they make 1 penny they can get $3,000 that's fine with them i mean you've put up 6 million and you won three thousand, but it will work if you have if you're mathematically uh, uh, correct. But now the quants are n- nerds. These are people who finish second best on, the, on the playground.
0: So the nerds are beating up the the high school football yeah, captains on that, the f- stock floor. <laughs>
1: exactly. That is what's happening now. There are m- many more, much more of the profits to be made on uh, Wall Street. And this was true even before the crash of two thousand eight. Uh, were being made by the nerds. They don't call them that. They just call them quants. Uh, a quant is a mathematically a mathematical genius uh, from the nerd community. <laughs> and it really is a laugh and a half because these the macho masters of the universe are wondering what's happening. They used to have a rule: you did not go out to lunch. You did not go out to lunch, and uh, because you're just wasting. You're wasting. If you must eat on the job, and then we'll send out to the deli for you, you weakling. Uh, and that was always the spirit. Now they're assigning these uh, masters of the universe go to uh, go take customers to lunch. Uh, I mean, you know, people who might invest with the uh, with the firm. It's it's really it, it, it's it's humiliating. And this all goes back to your childhood experiences uh, uh, on the. Uh, on, on on the playgrounds. And among newspaper men, they're mostly nerds. I'm sorry to say, I was one myself. Among newspaper men, you finally will get people who are, they're nerds, but they are ambitious enough so they will make themselves go up to any human being and ask pointed questions. And I always found the way to operate was to walk up to someone, never, never ask if they'll talk to you. You'll just say, you know, my name is Tom Wolfe. You have some information that I could really use. And I would, not only would I like to have it, I deserve to have it, and I insist that you give it to me. You'd be amazed how well that works.
0: One of the things that I think I, I really love about <clears throat> your newest book, Back to Blood, is the way you immerse us in the thoughts of your characters. And this is your your signature prose style because what you capture is literally how human beings think. We're thinking about 10 different things at once. We're thinking faster than we can even really capture in our own minds, and our own experiences. And I really like that style. So talk about writing in that style. Do you, like, have to type as fast as you think?
1: (laughs) No, you just have to... to, uh... Imagine what others are thinking. I set these things off with a row of six colons. Mm-hmm. I think this is uh, might be classified as new punctuation. Uh, when the person the person may be speaking, uh, in the middle of the thoughts, I will try to let the reader know what this person is really thinking. <laughs> so you, in the midst of the, uh, of a speech, there's these six colons. And what's between that six and the next six colons is what he's really thinking. In a way, it's like what Woody Allen did in Annie Hall. You remember that Mm -hmm. movie? Oh, yeah. He had subtitles for the way people, what people were actually thinking as they said audibly uh, what was supposed to be on their minds. Why he didn't use it more, I don't know. Again, I don't know. It was brilliant. And the use of the subtitles, I thought, would just crack me up. You usually see those in foreign movies, but this is somebody speaking... English, and in in the subtitle, you know what the person is really thinking, like, oh, you're such a brilliant and persuasive influence on other people. And underneath in the written caption, it says, you smarmy little bastard.
0: (laughs) One of the things I really uh, liked about this book, and I think this is interesting, it might be kind of a, a divisive book in this way, is that lots of the men we meet are just somewhere south of Despicable. <laughs> 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 and so they're... they're image, and it seems to me that the older the male characters get, the more this becomes. We The nicest guy, the most mature and likable guy, is Nestor Camacho, and he's the youngest and greenest cop. Yeah. And as we ascend upward... Uh, through Edward Topping, who's obsessed with preteen uh, wearing short shorts, <laughs> up through uh, the, uh, the psychiatrist who is treating porn addiction but also simultaneously creating it, to yeah, the yeah. absolutely most distressing Mr. Fleischman. <laughs> yeah. Talk about creating these kind of characters who seem to be like as they older they get, they get less mature and they get more <laughs> obsessed with the, with the weirdest things. To tell you the
1: truth, I hadn't—I never thought
0: about that until you just said that. <laughs> but it,
1: come to think of it, it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's true. And the psychiatrist, and this, believe me, is not uh, fiction—in the case of Mr. Fleischman, the billionaire, he has managed to string this guy on and on so he'll never stop being a patient. <laughs> this, I'm afraid to say, is true of psychiatrists in general. Why cure somebody who's coming in three times a week and bringing you a bundle of money? And they don't do this maliciously. It just sort of they fall into it naturally. Well, you, I think we need to work out a lot of things before I let you go. I'm, I'm not saying they're they're not bad people, but the, it's it's one of the uh, money is a terrible uh, the, the lust for money is a terrible instinct to have. <laughs>
0: You deal with lots of lust in this book. I mean, and yet
1: the scenes are—I shouldn't even say this. There's a lot of sex, a lot of lust, but they're not prurient. They're not—they're not really sexy. Uh, I shouldn't say that. Actually, hey, uh, scratch that. I I didn't say that. Uh, (laughs) But you, I I try to take uh, the reader through all of the, instead of writing. uh, Quickly, his heart thumping gingerly uh, <laughs> slowly he and you get into all these physical uh, facts. Uh, sometimes the physical facts are really I'm, are meant to be pretty funny <laughs> and uh, uh, when you really th- gosh when you really think about it, the preludes to sex, the sexual act are so much better. So much more palatable and and many and so much better to watch than the act itself. Uh, the act itself, you have to watch two horses, which I've done, in a mating barn, to realize what you look like as a human being, uh, fulfilling this great romantic thing that you've uh, oh you've given gifts for and you've taken people to this and that uh, swell uh, place. And then when you finally get to that thing of your dreams, it's just the bang-a-bang-a-bang-a-bang-a-bang, and that motion of bang-a-bang-a-bang-a-bang is nowhere found in the in the romantic prelude. It's not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. <clears throat> now, oh, one of the things I think that you do very well in this book, you create these characters who are I, I would describe are are cringe worthy. It's a it's a it's a a task to, to read about some of these people because they're so kind of awful and I'm thinking of topping who begins the, the novel and I'd like you to talk about just as a writer don't you you aren't don't you yourself sometimes feel embarrassed to put yourself in the minds of these kind of worms <laughs> weasels and and pond scum
1: Oh not at all I mean that's, since that's what the world's made of I feel it's my duty to bring these, these people alive you mentioned topping. Uh, I wanted, he first appears in the prologue and explains, he helps explain the title. Back to Blood is really not about wet blood, although if there are any horror fiction uh, fans who (laughs) would like to think of it that way, it's okay okay by me. I'm talking about blood and lions. In the prologue, I try to make the distinction between wet blood and blood and lions, and I start off with... The most wasp character that you can imagine. His wife is even more so. But, and his name tells you—it's Edward T. Topping the Fourth, and his son—they call Fiver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a very—it it really is a—it's a very American. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant custom, all these numbers after the name. It doesn't happen in England, but here there are just not enough Roman numbers in existence to to really get where you want to go. Actually, there are very few people named the sixth today, and not that not many fives, but lots of fours, threes, and juniors. And his wife is even more of a uh, a White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Protestant's a key word. Among real Protestants, one of the greatest sins is idleness. You just do not sit idle in the sun. You don't sit idle, particularly lie idle uh, underneath the, the sun in Miami, let's say. Uh, Mrs. Topping will always organize something on the beach. If everyone's finally laid back and enjoying the just the moment, she'll say, I have a great idea. Why don't we do a speed walk on the beach? This time we're going to shoot for five miles an hour for three miles. And I tell you, five miles an hour for three miles is very difficult, fast. Uh, four miles is, uh, is difficult enough, but she wants five. And you're not going to just lie there. That, that's the, the real thing. If you think you're going to just waste your life having fun, forget about it. Not in my presence you're not going to do it. And when people call the work ethic, They were really talking about the Protestant ethic, a term that Max Weber, the German sociologist, came up with. And it all has to do, when we get into Protestantism, but you're supposed to internalize God. He's not up there in the sky telling you what to do. You internalize uh, his instructions. And that's one one reason that some of these uh, uh, Protestant armies, like the Scottish warriors have been about the bravest that have ever existed. And that's because they feel that God is inside of them, and you don't disobey the guy. <laughs> he's, you know, he's watching, he's with you, he's he's inside of you, and you don't dare be guilty of sloth uh, or gluttony or, or uh, uh, worst of all, it's, of course, pride.
0: Now, but what you are guilty of, and where God manifests Himself in your characters is guilt. For your characters, when they're manifesting God inside, yeah. it's guilt, and there's plenty of guilt to spread around in this book. It's like a butter You gotta talk about using guilt as a plot driver and a character motivator because you do it so well, and it's really fun.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, but to tell you the truth, when I I never realized it at the time, but when I think of how many things I have done have been determined by sheer guilt. It's, to me, unbelievable to, to, to look back at. Huge mistakes because of, uh, of guilt. Uh, and I remember a professor I had at Washington and Lee University saying to me, I was expressing some kind of guilt, and he says, Don't you understand that men have rights too? <laughs> 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 and it's true, but I never thought of it at the time when I needed Counsel like that. Um, Guilt is is fascinating. There is a only book I ever know, uh, ever read, uh, which is all about envy, uh, had as its thesis that uh, guilt is the fear of being envied. And you know, that's so true. I know people who will. If, if, let's say, the, the plumber or, or no, more, more a construction worker, construction crews come into the house to repair something, they will take off the shirt and tie and put on a, a sweater and the, the the guy's wife will do the same thing because you don't want to be envied. You don't want these people walking in uh, and saying, oh, look at the way these people live. My God. And you feel guilty from the fact that they might, might envy you. Now, that's not the only cause of guilt. Uh, I think a lot of it is learned when you're too young t- to know what's, what's happening. And it's not a bad thing for parents to instill this particular feeling within you, but it can get, it can get carried away. There are some people and some religious groups that are so incul- inculcated with uh, the feeling of mm-hmm. guilt uh, that they cannot be tested on a lie detector. Lie detector, because you know the lie detector picks up your a lot of your central nervous system's responses to questions. Uh, if suddenly your heart starts beating, uh, that's a tip off to in the, the lie detector that you are upset by this question. It may be a clue to the fact that you, you you're guilty. But some people have so much guilt built into them. All you have to do is ask them. Now, you came upon this scene shortly after the knife went into the, this, this woman's uh, chest. You sure you weren't there when the knife went into this woman's chest? And that's enough to make some people's heart beat like mad, <laughs> you know, because I, it could have been me. I'm the, kind, I'm, I'm the kind of guy. And that's one of the very good reasons lie detector test results are not allowed in court. Lie detector
0: tests lie themselves
1: well they do because they're just at, they're they're merely recording uh neural responses they're not really getting at at any facts. It's just how you, how you're responding. Oh, the old witch doctors used to put their hands over the heart of the person they're questioning, and if suddenly that heart's going bang 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 the 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 witch doctor would take that as a sign of
0: of guilt we've come a long way, haven't we? <laughs> I hope <laughs> now one of the things I think that makes all of your books so interesting and especially this one is that I think you plot on two very different levels in two very different ways on one hand in this book we have all these great characters and this wonderfully uh, interwoven plot as they slowly coalesce and come together on the other hand we have all these fabulous Nonfiction elements that you're famous for putting in your books, and you put in there, and we know they're nonfiction. We can tell when Tom Wolfe tells us something that's true in a work of his fiction. We just absolutely can nail it, and know it. Okay, he's this is real, and but you plot with those two and use those to move the plot forward too. I'd like you to talk about the interactions of those two for yourself as a writer and just to add how you experience that as you create a novel like this.
1: Well, I I started off in writing as a journalist, worked a lot of newspapers, wrote for a lot of magazines, and I personally feel fortunate having done that. The accuracy in those areas you're just talking about to me is very, is very important. And when harsh critics call my work journalistic, I say right on, that's, that's exactly what it is. You hit the nail on the head. But there are certain there's certain sociological facts particularly, there's no character you can put them all in, in in the character's head. So running in the narrative, believe me, they're not essays, I will talk about the relationship between the, in Miami, for example, between the American blacks who, who have been there a long, long time and the Haitians who have arrived in, oh, the last, 20 years and there are a lot of Haitians there and they do not get along at all I mean there's real enmity between the two groups I feel it incumbent upon me there's no one character who can say oh here's the situation here are my group and their group people don't talk like that it is to work into the narrative an explanation of why of why this is true oh even the attitude of American blacks toward the Cuban police you know, overnight it seems to American blacks in Miami, these Cubans came out from the sky like they're paratroopers. And the next thing uh, the American black population knew, they were the police force. And a lot of the Cubans, Cubans are great cops, but one of their techniques, they don't really like all that paperwork. They'd rather take care of it out back of the building. <laughs> and when you take care of things out back of the building, you're really shoving people, uh, you're shoving people around. And I just think you have to explain the backdrop of, of all of this. I mean, you know, of course, the Haitians, by and large, uh, although I have a couple of Haitians who are very light-skinned in the, in the story, uh, most of them are, are black, and, of course, the American black community is. And, and far from that being a, a uniting factor, it's divisive. And I think somehow you have to explain why that's, if that's true. And if you don't have any single character who's bright enough to write a little essay and dialogue. You have to work it in, you have to work it in yourself.
0: Now, as a writer, you know, I was looking at uh, I Am Charlotte Simmons in in Hooking Up, Mm -hmm. which are, uh, you know, one's nonfiction and one's fiction. Uh, How do you decide, okay, this is non-fiction, this is fiction, this is going to be a magazine article, I'm going to write a magazine article about the, the traitors instead of go back and revisit the nerds versus the yeah. the, the revenge of the nerds, essentially.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, that very uh, example you give uh, happened to me in in real life. Right, now, I'm working on a magazine piece, as I mentioned, and it gets into the whole business of uh, the Nerds and versus the masters of the of, of of the universe, and I started to write this magazine piece in fiction, taking off from where the Bonfire of the Vanities
0: ended. So it was going to be a sequel.
1: It was like a it was going to be a brief it was going to be a brief uh, sequel, but then I said to myself, that's just ducking your obligation to really. Tell people exactly what's uh, what's going on now. This piece I'm writing it may turn out to be uh, good or bad, but I think I've done the right thing. I'm returning to nonfiction. Actually, the until I published the Bonfire of the Vanities when I was 57 years old, I had never intentionally written a line of fiction in my life. I was always a, a a journalist. Sometimes I was accused of writing fiction, but I didn't deliberately ever do it. And even in this form, the new journalism, which draws upon techniques of the novel, uh, to me it was fatal to ever, ever, ever make up dialogue, or make up anything. Uh, The whole power of the form, so-called new journalism, was that this reads like a novel, but this all happened. Every line of dialogue is absolutely real. And when I wrote about the astronauts in the right stuff. I was greatly hampered by the fact that I wasn't on the flights. <laughs> and, but I was lucky in that, at my request, NASA declassified the taped. When astronaut finished the flight, he was sat down in front of a microphone and a tape recorder and recall tried to recall every single detail of the flight because it was all brand new. Nobody knew what a human being was going to find uh, whizzing around in space. And here these things were, and they, they finally agreed they would declassify them. And declassifying is not an easy thing. Every page has to be declassified, not just... Oh, one page at a time? Yeah. Every has to... That word declassified has to be written on I can remember sitting in the... They were very cooperative in the NASA Library in Houston, waiting for somebody to please finish a, a stretch of uh, declassifying these things, so I could could get to work on it. Now, but I, in that book and others, uh, when I didn't have the dialogue I needed, I used a technique I call the downstage narrator or the downstage third person in which you write in the tone and language that of the dialogue that there might have been. You don't pretend there's anything Real about it, you're just te- you're writing an essay, but in the in the voice, uh, and sometimes it's the cornball voice of an actual character. And, and,
0: now, that's and, one of the things I think your your great strengths is your ability to really capture the voices of these characters. And I, I'm wondering, I mean, you're a, a a wonderfully intelligent and cultured Southern gentleman. Uh, uh, the the minds you get into in this book are not. <laughs> So talk about immersing yourself in the mind of somebody like Norman Lewis, who is—he's probably somewhere just in the map of vile. <laughs> well, I assume, I—I
1: I think I'm right that everyone, I think everyone on Earth, except for you and me, uh, is—I uh, agree—is uh, motivated constantly by uh, status concerns. And I think if you can put yourself in somebody else's mind to that extent, what is going to make this person look good, or what do they think is going to make them look good? What style, even things down to style of dress, uh, and to uh, use of language. Oh, language is a great demarcation.
0: Mm. Uh, we can, all judge people how, by how they speak oh, instantly.
1: You know, in in the case of the uh, President Obama, I think he speaks so well that i don't i don't i think most people just don't think about his origins it, it's it's about where he has uh, where he has arrived and he speaks like a good graduate of columbia and harvard i mean <laughs> uh and my god you know we should have dr Henry iggins <coughs> today <laughs> to just travel around and just tell you don't you realize how much highest status you would have uh, if you would talk like this instead of the way you, <laughs> instead of the way you talk. Pygmalion, which became, of course, My Fair Lady, is right on the money. And when there's a marvel scene in Pygmalion and in the movie where uh, Henry Higgins has taught this fishmonger's daughter to speak the king's English. And in the middle of a dance... Ballroom. The thread in the bead snaps, and these, the, the little jewels in the bead are going all over the floor. And she suddenly reverts totally to her, her Cockney uh, instincts. Well, I, actually, I, I can't really. Uh, I, I I don't know the accent, but uh, she suddenly says something like you know, this: "You little bastards!" Are me! And she's talking Cockney, and the people around her who think that she is this tremendously well-spoken lady find that so funny. Oh, she can do this, you know, she can mimic. <laughs> she can mimic the Cockneys. Uh, uh, it becomes a great plus as long as she doesn't keep, keep on. and it's, But there, to me, that is that you just figure out what it is that is going to confer a higher status. Now, most people say status, and this is a joke on me, when I was in graduate school and first came upon the work of Max Weber, the German sociologist who introduced the concept of status, everybody in the faculty, I was in a program called American Studies, when we got onto that subject, pronounced it status. So I figured, well, there's social status, and then the condition of the boiler is status. You, you check on the status of the boiler room. So I thought, well, that's easy enough. One is social and one is mechanical. Uh, and only to find out that the american faculty members called it status because that's the way they did it in england you know and we are still sort of little colonials uh, of the not only the english but also the french when it comes to matters uh, intellectual i mean those two worn out countries for god's sake but we're very much impressed
0: uh, uh, we're hoping to become uh, uh, as as well worn out as they are <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> Well, you know, I must say, I'm, you have to include me in this. I'm so, I think most people, I I'm certainly am, impressed by foreign accents. It makes me think, like, oh my God, I must have a terrible, I must have a terrible accent. Because uh, theirs are so good.
0: Uh, no, actually, saying, <laughs> your accent totally works.
1: Oh, great. Well, maybe
0: I <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, you're blown Maybe you're Maybe there's
1: hope for me, though, yes.
0: Now, uh, one of the things that that uh, interests me in this book is this notion of status and class and the divisive lines between us, and it, what's so interesting, I, I was thinking that in England that's very clear. Mm-hmm. We really they, I mean, it, it's you're they're practically wearing a badge. Yes. <laughs> Here, it's very different, and it has a little to do with income. It has a little to do with your behavior. It has a little to do with what kind of mm-hmm. culture that you uh, view as acceptable and, and take in. And I'd like you to talk about the notions of class and status mm-hmm. and how that works out in this novel.
1: Well, in general, uh, I honestly believe there is no such thing as a class class in the United States because people will not show deference and people are reluctant to show their haughtiness to people that perhaps in by a number of measures might be below them, servants, let's say. You just don't do that. I mean, if, if someone tries to order a mechanic around at the uh, repair shop, you're risking your life if you treat him like a... <laughs> Yeah, uh, some some sort of subservient animal. I mean, I I remember once hearing my father say something to him. It wasn't bad, but it was somewhat demeaning to a mechanic. And he goes, The guy says, don't get your pals in an uproar. <laughs> <laughs> that takes you down real fast when this, this big burly guy is saying, don't get your pals in an, in an uproar. Once I was in a taxi in New York with uh, a fellow who by it. European social standards was a count, and it was often addressed as uh, count count. I'll name him Ronaldi, That wasn't really his name. It was, he was an Italian, and he was uh, a, in some circles he had the title of count. So we uh, we get into a taxi together. The driver opens up and says, Where to, Mac? And there's a hesitation, and then he goes ahead and he tells where he wants to go. And the driver says... Okay, if we take the drive Mac, and there's several more Macs. So the count says, uh, driver, you know, there's another three-letter word that serves very well for Mac, and it's spelled S-I-R. And if you will switch from M-A-C to S-I-R, I assure you, you will have a much better tip at the end of this ride. At which point, the driver, still, he's going down this drive, and he turns around, swivels his head, and he says, Are you from the other side? And of course, he was. He's Italian count. (laughs) And my friend indicates, uh, Well, yes, he is from abroad. And he says, The rest of us, says the driver, the rest of us came here to get away from all that old horse shit. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that's one of the great moments in the status history of America When, uh, but that is typical, people are not going to be treated as if they belong to a, a different, it's just not going to happen and you can thank Thomas Jefferson uh, for that when he moved into the White House he made sure that all the tables in the dining room were round because there was no longer any head of the table and you couldn't rank people at the table according to where they say, They use this business of the foot of the table is the worst. Then there's above the salt and below the salt. The salt, I guess, is supposed to be in the middle. And the the whole group is ranked socially. Well, Jefferson introduced a system he called Pell-Mell. When America was finally uh, recognized by England as a, a legitimate country, it was a big moment in the history of the two countries, the British ambassador first one to the United States, arrives at the White House. And he's wearing all this gear that's really from England's brilliant, glorious past. And and he has a ceremonial sword in a scabbard right there. And Jefferson meets him. He's dressed, but he has no bedroom slippers. And as if to say, this old bullshit's not (laughs) going to not going to continue in, in this country. So he takes the ambassador and his wife to dinner, and there's a, oh, it must be 25, 30 people for this grand dinner, all dignitaries. Uh, and he says to the whole group, uh, this evening the dinner is going to be, we'll be seated in the Pell style. What's that? And he says, well, if you get to a seat first and you like it, you sit there. The one exception he made, he did take the wife of the ambassador on his arm and he took her to sit right next to him. But the ambassador had to hustle around the table to find a place place to sit. And one way, that was Pell-Mell, one way after another he went to great uh, extremes even to show I don't mean to keep using this word, but the, uh, the, that's all bullshit. It does not apply in this country. Uh, and even when, when there was the first homesteaders who would, you know, they line up at a, a border between a territory, American territory, and a state. Many times if somebody had a starting pistol and they'd fire, and whoever got to a piece of land that he liked first could occupy it. 40 acres. you get, You get 40 acres... Uh, you're obliged to improve the land in terms of agriculture within five years. I don't think they ever enforced the rule, but that was the rule.
0: It's Occupy Middle America.
1: Yes, and it's (laughs) Pell-Mell. Pell-Mell style. (laughs) And the the Europeans could not understand this. I mean, after all, you know, they'd say, land is wealth. It's all about land. And then Jefferson would say, yeah, of course. (laughs) Uh, and and it, you can have it. We got we have this endless number of square miles of territory and uh, enjoy it. <laughs>
0: it's yours. Are you working on a new novel or a longer piece now? And and do you work on more than one thing at once? I've noticed.
1: Uh, I envy people who can work on more than one thing at once. I can't. But I have in mind what I want to do, which is actually a, a book of nonfiction. And as soon as I mention it. Maybe I shouldn't mention it; bore people to tears. But anyway, it's the story of the theory of evolution. It's not my uh, comments on the theory of evolution. It's no argument about the theory. It's just it, because it's a very, very funny story. I just mentioned two parts of it that strike me as particularly interesting. It all has to do with uh, status, as a matter of fact. Darwin had been; he was a, a well-known as a naturalist talking about other things in, in, in science and nature. But he had been secretly working for years on the theory of evolution. He didn't want anybody to know about it because somebody else might jump ahead of him. <clears throat> and unbeknownst to him, there was a—Darwin was about 50 at this point. There was a young man, slightly over 30, named Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, who was not a gentleman. Darwin did not—he was a gentleman because he lived on landed income— Never had to work at anything, whereas Wallace was the son of an innkeeper who had gone bankrupt, so he was not a he was not a gentleman. Wallace is a the lower end of the Malay archipelago, and he comes down with he was there studying the flora and the fauna, and he's come down with malaria. He can only do there are only two ways that he can in a shack, I and mean, it's just terrible to entertain himself or just to while away the hours between paroxysms of the disease, either to read Tristram Shandy for the sixth time <laughs> uh, or just think, you know, just try to think of something that might interest him. While he's doing the thinking, he comes up with the theory of natural selection, mm-hmm. which became Darwin became famous for. And now he's this is the 1850s. Uh, almost 1860, and he's there. He is in the Malay Archipelago, and he has this idea. And he, in, in his lucid spells between the paroxysms, he writes a 20-page piece. He doesn't call it natural selection, but that's exactly what it what it was. He doesn't. He wants to send it for publication. And he wants to get it to a famous British naturalist uh, named Lyell. L Y E L L who was a geologist, but he also a very influential figure in, in among them, the naturalists. But he doesn't have his address, and you don't just look up things in a telephone book and, <laughs> in the Malay Peninsula in, in 1858. Uh, but he does have Darwin's address because they exchanged uh, letters over something that he, Wallace, had written. Uh, and so he sends it to Darwin. Oops. <laughs> and he says, if you think there's any merit in this, please show it to Lyell, because Lyell's like the dean of this whole, uh, all the naturalists. And Darwin was a combination of a really moral, nice person with a really fervently ambitious person. And he, he reads this thing, and he he does turn it over to Lyell, they, they were both Jonlin and pals, and he says, I've been forestalled. That was the word for scooped. All of my life's work has now been done by another man. Uh, he said it's as if he saw my chapter headings and he just uh, wrote them down. You know, my life's work is destroyed. Well, Lyle, being a gentleman, says, well, i tell you what we might do. We'll, there's one more meeting of the Linnaean Society coming up, so what we'll do is we'll present both papers, Mr. Wallace's paper and yours. And he said, but... Darwin said, "I don't have a paper." And uh, well, will will what we'll do is we'll create an abstract. You know, abstracts usually go before mm-hmm. the piece, the the, the the scientific piece. If we have an abstract, obviously there's more more to it than than that. And I'm not saying that he took anything from Wallace's paper all they added right in front of him, but he had the wife of another gentleman. Uh, pulled together some letters he had written in and some notes he had taken, because uh, he, he was working on a book about this subject. And she puts together an abstract. And so at this meeting, the Linnaean Society, uh, they present both papers. And wouldn't you know it that D comes before W in the alphabet? <laughs> and, and so Darwin's papers presented first, and he is an established naturalist. And then this young man from nowhere papers presented second, and immediately everyone said, oh, isn't it nice, he's patting this young man on the head. He, that this young man has obviously worked hard, uh, and uh, he, he's done good work. Because it took three three months for a letter to get from the Malay Archipelago to London or to England, there was no way to, gee, there was no way to tell young Mr. Wallace that this meeting was taking place, and he couldn't have gotten to it anyhow, he didn't have time. So he had no idea what was going on. He he finally learned in a letter from Lyell, another three months, Lyell said, you know, Charles Darwin has really gone out of his way. give you credit for what you've accomplished. What does Wallace know? He's so grateful. He's been plucked from obscurity, and uh, his paper's been read at this meeting. Darwin doesn't show up either because that that makes it look equal. Neither neither of the uh, scientists is at the this Meeting of the Linnaean Society. It really, until late in the game, never occurs to Wallace that what has actually uh, happened. But but this time he's not going to create a squawk because he's suddenly well known. Darwin is so feels so guilty that every time the subject comes up, he'll mention young Mr. Wallace, who's done some good
0: great work in this area. So you're you're on again about guilt again, huh? Yes,
1: guilt and status, <laughs> both, it's all in one all in in one package. So, the book that I'm writing is called The Human Beast, and it will be the story of the, of the theory of evolution. The second thing I was going to mention is that Thomas Huxley was a great supporter of Darwin and Darwinism. And this gets down to a new field of sociology, which is called the, the history of concept construction, but I think my name for it is, I think, get to the heart of it, the sociology of truth. Very few theories become accepted as truth without backers. A perfect example is the theory of self-esteem for education. This was an offhand remark by William James, who was probably one of our greatest uh, psychologists. Uh, He's sort of off the cuff somewhere, and the idea was that unless you give a student self-esteem, that student is not going to do well, and it's essential to give the student self-esteem. That held in place for 60 years until 1999 when finally uh, some people in the field of education had a massive, I say massive, uh, about 200,000 people were studied. And they found out that exactly the opposite is true. If you build up self-esteem in some student and you, you tell the student, you're great, you're just fabulous, that student can, ha- cannot handle failure. The gods have obviously turned against him. Uh, and so nobody, you don't hear that. I mean, there are people who don't know any better, but you don't usually, you don't hear in the academic community any more about self-esteem. Uh, but all the right people had taken that concept and just passed it along. And Thomas Huxley actually went from biology department to biology department among the universities in England and created the uh, the sense that, well, if your people don't believe in Darwinism. They're obviously sadly behind the the curve. They might as well try to do science with the Bhagavad Vita as to to not accept Darwinism. He did a hell of a job. He He really spread among the right people, people in the universities, this concept. He also taught Darwin, you never stop to argue. You treat Arguments as if I haven't got time for that, we have to plunge ahead. We have there's so much we do not yet, uh, know. and that's a very effective technique. And he taught it to, uh, to Darwin. So there was one little bad stretch there when suddenly the genetic theory, which had been created by a German monk, finally came to light. Thirty years later, there was a fight between genetics and evolution as to how things occurred, and finally in the sociology of truth, somebody had the bright idea of combining them, which is the way it is now. You combine, you say it's all the same theory. Uh, it's, it's evolution and it expresses itself genetically. That's where we are right now and the world is now full of people, and it's a beginning to affect the public, who believe that humans really are animals uh, and they, everything's predetermined. predetermined. Uh, <clears throat> you, you may think you have free will. But believe me, you, you don't. You're just responding automatically uh, to the way you've been programmed uh, genetically. And yes, the external conditions, the environment can change what happens to you, but there's nothing you can do about it one way or the other. You have this automatic response. So I was at a conference on evolution and the law, and, and the idea was if we have no free will, these were lawyers and scientists. Uh, if we have no free will, how can we a- accuse somebody of a crime when the person did the only thing that person could do under the circumstances, given their genetic makeup and the influence of the environment?
0: We're prisoners of our genetics, so we shouldn't be prisoners of some arbitrary law.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I was thinking the same thing. I got it in a question period, I was, and I said, if, if we don't have free will, why should we believe anything you've just told us? You had to say it. <laughs> you didn't have any choice. Well, they swept this. They swept this aside, uh, taking a cue from Darwin. Yeah, because I mean, what what scientific credentials did uh, did, did I have? It had, I knew this had worked before. It's called the theory of reflexivity in sociology. It was a meeting. And there was a theory that all theories all theories are socially determined we may think we've made up a new theory but it's just the result of our uh, social environment
0: oh that's the old uh, the, it's a little bit like charles ford who said we don't develop steam engines until it's steam engine time <laughs>
1: that, that's a good that's a good example at, the, at, at well, there was a sociological meeting in which this theory was being presented, you know, that uh, it's all socially determined. And so this one well-known sociologist raised his hand and said, well, if that's if they're all socially determined, that means your theory that they're socially determined was socially determined. And why don't we spend some time finding out exactly why socially you felt compelled to say this? Well, he is of a sufficient standing that that was the end of that theory. I'm not of sufficient standing to a,
0: I, I highly disagree. I've been talking with Tom Wolf. His new book is Back to Blood, and he is the creator of the new discipline, the sociology of truth. <laughs> thank you for joining me, Tom.
1: Oh, thank you, Rick. I've enjoyed this a lot.